turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark's Gospel chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 15. And we're going to complete the final thoughts that Mark has this morning in his introduction or the prologue of the Gospel. It runs, as I said at the welcome time at the very beginning of the service, it runs through verse 15. And then really, as we noted a couple weeks ago, the, the immediacy, the urgency, the speed of Mark's gospel, well, that's going to become very evident in the coming weeks as Mark really takes off after this initial welcome and begins to write in a frantic pace. And we will uh, not match him uh, pace for pace Speed for speed there, but we will definitely be picking up the pace as we study this, taking larger chunks in order to hopefully gather the central theme that Mark has for us in this book. Mark is trying this morning to drive home a central theme that goes throughout the book, but we're going to see it especially clearly this morning. It is this simple fact that Jesus Christ is the prophesied perfect Son of God with whom God is well pleased and to whom we must believe. That Jesus Christ is the prophesied, perfect Son of God, with whom God is well pleased and to whom we must believe. And as we will see this morning, the pleasure that God has in His Son is the apex, is the high point of this introduction. If you're taking notes, I have four points this morning. We're going to look at His baptism, the baptism of Christ. We're going to look at His deity. We're going to look at His temptation And we're going to look at his message. The majority of our time will be spent on the deity and his temptation. Look with me at Mark's gospel there. Verse 4, I would call your attention to the baptism of John. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And we noted a few weeks ago that John's baptism is different than the command that we have as New Testament Christians to be baptized. Our baptism signifies that we are identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Whereas John's baptism was an acknowledgement of sin and a repentance from that sin. Which that should leave us this morning with the obvious question. Why was John then baptizing Jesus? Why was Jesus baptized? Jesus Christ, fully God yet fully man, perfect, having no need to repent of any sin because no sin is found in him. So why baptism? And I think the point is this. He was baptized not as a sign of repentance, but rather as a public means of declaring his perfection. Or his baptism by John pointed to the cross by placing himself with sinners among those who needed to repent, who were imperfect. We'll explain a little bit more about that. Notice something unusual about the baptism of Christ. If you're looking at your Bible, look at verse 5. Notice, and all the country, this statement of a multitudes of amounts of people of, specifically, Judea and Jerusalem. But in verse 9, we have uh, something different about the mention of Jesus' baptism. Notice, Jesus comes from Nazareth. He comes alone, singularly, and he comes from Nazareth. Nazareth was a place that was known to be antagonistic about following God in worship. So all of these people were coming to John from places that prescribed to worshiping God. 
Judea and Jerusalem. And many were coming. And yet here comes Christ from a place that does not prescribe to worshiping God. And he comes alone. Verse 10. There's something important to notice here. He came up out of the water. There's no mention of that in John's baptism. And that detail is very important. Here's why. You notice John's favorite word in verse 10. Immediately, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Here's the point about the baptism of Jesus being baptized by a baptism of repentance. And that is, Christ, in doing that, was identifying himself with sinners who were in need of repentance. But he, being perfect, not needing any repentance, was shown to be perfect by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? So people are going into the water of baptism of repentance. Christ goes into the water with no need to repent. And yet we're shown that he's the perfect sacrifice for us by then being baptized by the Holy Spirit. The approval of God the Father. So really the question must be asked for us today. Have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Now you may have been water baptized. You may have been sprinkled. I grew up in a church one time where they didn't sprinkle or dunk. They poured a pitcher. So whichever one of those that you did, that's not the main question. The main question is, have you been baptized or have you been regenerated or have you been made alive by the Holy Spirit cleansing you from sin and empowering you to be more like Christ? That's the question for us today. Because certainly, baptism is a good thing. Christian baptism is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. We're commanded to do it according to Scripture. But if you don't have first the regeneration, the being made alive by Christ, all you're doing is getting wet. There's nothing more significant than the fact that you went underwater and you came out. And yet... If you've been made alive, baptized by the Holy Spirit, now that water baptism has great significance. But we really need to be careful that we don't put more weight on water baptism than we do on the spiritual baptism. Has Christ filled your life? Has he made you clean? Has he claimed you as as his own? That's the question that really matters. His deity. His deity. Notice in verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God acknowledging him as Christ and the Holy Spirit coming down. And this text is certainly a strong proof for the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God being one God and yet represented in three persons. God the Father, Christ the Son, And the Holy Spirit. God saves us through Christ. And that is confirmed by the Holy Spirit that comes into our hearts. Now there's a couple of implications that I want you to note. About God acknowledging the deity of Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First point. Christ has always been the second person of the Trinity. Let's not think 
erroneously, not, let's not think wrongly, that he was not the second person of the Trinity until he was baptized here. That's not the case at all. He's always been the second person of the Trinity. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And notice, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, meaning the one that was raised from life, raised from death to life, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, and there's the point I want to make about the deity of Christ being always the case. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Pastor John Piper stated this about that passage. In him all the fullness of deity was pleased to to dwell. Or you could say... Piper says, with the NIV, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In other words, it was God's pleasure to do this. God did not look out over the world to find a man who would qualify for his delight and then adopt him as his son. Rather, God himself took the initiative to bestow his own fullness on a man in the act of incarnation. Or we could say, he took the initiative to clothe the fullness of his own deity with human nature. And Colossians 1.19 says he was pleased to do this. It was his pleasure and delight. Second implication that I would have under his deity is notice the father-son relationship that is highlighted. You see that in verse 11. You are my beloved son. Look with me at verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Angels that were around the throne. Look at verse 14 and 15. Now when John, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, his father. Saying the time is fulfilled and he and the kingdom of God. There is a father-son relationship here. That is being proclaimed. God proclaiming Christ his beloved son. He not only implies that he, he is eternal. That he is eternally God. His eternal deity. He points to the perfect and rich father son relationship. And we looked a little bit at this last week. The earthly ministry of Christ from here forward. Note God, Christ's earthly ministry from here forward is about how can I please my father. How can I do the will of my Father? It's about doing the will of His Father. It's about proclaiming the kingdom of His Father. It's about proclaiming the gospel of His Father. And we'll see more of this in a minute, but it should be noted, the perfect Father and the perfect Son in perfect relationship. And may we emulate that more fully as we see it more clearly. Third implication under Christ's deity God, being well pleased with his beloved son, is God 
being well pleased with himself. Let me explain. God is perfect. And that means he cannot be well pleased with anything that is imperfect. It's impossible to do so. For God to be pleased with an imperfect thing makes him imperfect and that cannot be. So, the fact that God is well pleased with his beloved son points us to the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He has always been the second person because God has always been God. Now, if you and I are, when we get up in the morning, if we look in the mirror and we, we think to ourselves, looking good. I am well pleased with you. <laughs> That's vanity, isn't it? That's arrogant. It's prideful. It's sin. But God can look in the mirror and be very well pleased because there's nothing else to be pleased by but himself because he is the only one that is perfect. And to look in the mirror and for me to acknowledge looking good is thinking, I'm looking better than I ought. I'm looking at myself rather than looking at the perfect God. And when we recognize God, when we recognize Christ as the only one worthy of all praise and honor, all love and obedience, all glory, we will find ourselves truly satisfied. The difficulty is often the fact that we look at ourselves to try to satisfy, or we look to the world, or we look to the sin, or we look to our family to satisfy, and we're looking at imperfection. Lift your eyes and look at perfection. Fourth implication, last one under his deity. God, being well pleased with his beloved son, provides us the avenue for God to be well pleased with us, his children. Can I get an amen? Oh man, thank you. Andrew. The fact that God can look upon us and say, you are mine, I am your father, I am pleased by you, is a depth of wonder and grace and love that cannot be comprehended. This is the impossibility of the human existence. How can a perfect God ever be pleased with sinners like us? And Piper says it well. For it is precisely the infinite regard that the Father has for the Son which makes it possible for me, a wicked sinner, to be loved and accepted in the Son because in his death he restored all the insult and injury that I had done to the Father's glory through my sin. Christ never insulted, has never injured the Father's glory like we have. God takes Christ's perfect record and when we trust Christ as the payment, perfect payment for our sins, he looks upon us and says, my beloved, my son, my daughter. This is the high point of this passage. This is the high point of the first 15 
verses of Mark that God is well pleased with his son and by then implication, he is well pleased with those who call upon his name in saving faith. What a wonder. That deserves a whole sermon, but we gotta move on. Let's go to his temptation. Verse 12. The spirit, notice again, Mark's favorite word, he uses it as many as 41 times in this book. Immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Matthew, Mark and Luke all give the account of the temptation of Christ. Mark's is by far the shortest. And the short account here I think is for a purpose. We're not going to go into this morning to the full account and study it in its complete entirety, but we will look a little bit at it and we're going to look at it the way Mark writes it. He writes it very short, therefore we'll spend a little time on it, but that the brevity of it, the shortness of the account, I think lends itself to some significance. And the significant li- significance lies in the truth that the ministry of Christ is and will always be for the duration of his earthly ministry in constant confrontation with Satan. You're going to see this from here forward in the Gospel of Mark. Christ, Satan, again and again and again, coming into confrontation with one another. And this is going to continue all the way to the greatest hour of trial for Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he again overcame Satan's temptations by relying on the will of his Father. Notice the wilderness theme. We noted that two weeks ago. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days. That was a, this is a, a reminder to us or was a reminder to the first uh, Christians there in the church at Rome of the Old Testament, of their forefathers, the Israelites who were in Egypt and they went out of Egypt into the wilderness And in in so doing, symbolizing that they were leaving the false gods of Egypt and completely devoting themselves in full submission to God. And Christ, notice, after being baptized with the Holy Spirit, doesn't go straight into ministry. There's, there's, There's some application here, even for discipleship, for a new believer. Not straight into the ministry but rather straight into the wilderness in a sense, straight into a deeper relationship with God, deeper reliance on God. He goes out into the wilderness signifying a a complete submission, a complete relationship, close, intimate relationship with God. The 40 days bears some significance. Obviously, the Israelites were in the wilderness 40 years 40 days is the extreme point of human suffering. Nothing to eat for 40 days. No food in what was probably a barren wasteland, hot sun beating down upon them, and yet here he's out there for 40 days. Notice verse 12. Excuse me, verse 13. Being tempted by Satan, he was with wild animals. He's surrounded by evil. He's surrounded by difficulty. Mark's gospel is the only one that mentions wild beasts. We're not sure why he mentioned that. It may have just been to help us understand the difficulty he was facing. But certainly the early church 
in Rome under the tyrannical reign of Nero would have found great encouragement with that mention because they knew what it was to face wild beasts with the temptation to give in to the enemy, with the temptation to abandon their faith in Christ. And here Christ stands up against the pressure of these wild beasts and even greater temptations for us. So it would have been encouragement to them. So it is with us that Christ has endured to the nth degree all temptation, whether physical or spiritual, emotional or mental. He's under temptation for 40 days, and yet he's not abandoned by the Father, for he has the presence of the Holy Spirit and the angels ministering to him. And you would note for us as well, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though God leads us, he is always with us. Because as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit and God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's an interesting note that we've got to We've got to see as a comparison between Christ and ourselves. Satan tempted the sinless Christ. When Satan tempts me, he doesn't tempt a sinless being. There is sin within me that he then draws my desire for in temptation. We see that in the book of James. And that's a very hard thing to swallow that there is temptation for us because of sin within us. That we are murderers even if we haven't ever committed the act of murder. That we are thieves even if we haven't ever stolen. As sinners, we are completely guilty and we have the horrible ability to all kinds of awful sin. That can be extremely discouraging. There's the account of one of the wartime, post-wartime trials of a gentleman who had been in a Nazi prison camp giving extensive beatings, extensive persecution to the Jews in those camps. And one of those Jews, post-war, walking into a courtroom, seeing his persecutor for the first time face-to-face outside of that prison wall, And he broke down in tears and fainted on the floor. And they asked him why. And he said it wasn't because of all the audacity that had been committed against him. It wasn't because of all the evil that he had seen this man do. He saw that man for the first time just like himself, a human being. And he realized for the first time that he as well had all the capacities of evil that that man had done against him. And it dropped him to his knees. We have all the capacities of sin. And yet, and yet, we are not without hope. Because Christ has taken on us, on himself, our condition and our sin. And it makes the hymn so much sweeter. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, sometimes failing. But he, my strength, my victory wins. Christ resisted the temptation. Christ conquered at his weakest state. And yet now when we are weak, 
the risen, reigning Christ, the eternal Son of God, is strong for us. And he tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that promise was purchased for us here in the wilderness by Christ in that temptation and certainly consummated at the cross and the resurrection. One final thing of note before we get a bit of application on this point is the temptation endured by Christ brings us all the way back to the Garden of Eden with the first temptation of the first Adam. Here Adam is in the Garden of Eden falling, failing to the deceptive temptation of Satan. But the second Adam, Christ, the perfect son, stands strong against that temptation, not failing in order that we might be saved. A few points of application are just thoughts for us for our daily lives in regards to Christ enduring this temptation. One would be when seeking God in repentance, when going out to that wilderness, so to speak, you should expect great opposition from the enemy. That's as true for Christ as it is true for you. When, when heaven oftentimes seems most glorious to us, what we long for more than any else, hell oftentimes burns the hottest in its desire to consume us in sin. You've got to know that. Expect that. Another point, maybe of application, would be that the most important factor in fighting temptation is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ gave us the promise in John sixteen thirty three: Take heart, I have overcome the world. And then another point would be to fill yourself with God's word. We didn't go into all the the fullest account of this temptation of Christ, but if we went to the other gospels, you see that Christ refuted Satan, the enemy, with scripture all three times out of Deuteronomy. And why should we memorize scripture? Why should we sit under the preaching of the word? Why should we fill ourselves with God's word? Kent Hughes, the pastor, says it well. God's will, God's word reveals God's mind and God's mind cannot be subject to sin. When we hide God's word in our heart, in essence, we're hiding the mind of God in our heart and God's mind cannot be subject to sin. Finally, his message. His Christ message, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaimed the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John Piper offers for us an important definition of the word repentance. He says this, a turning from sin, repentance is a turning from sin to embrace Christ as God's all-satisfying manifestation. It is necessary, but it is God's aggressive initiative in Jesus that brings it about. Repentance is a very uh, misunderstood word today. Maybe it's misunderstood because sin is so oftentimes misunderstood. Sin is so often seen as a mistake. I had a bit of a hiccup in my moral compass. And yet sin, according to scripture, is rebellion against God. It's rejection of God. So if sin is rebellion against God, then repentance just doesn't mean that you're simply sorry. So when we teach our children, we don't teach our children to say, say you're sorry. 
I'm glad you're sorry, but that's not repentance. There's forgiveness. Would you please forgive me for my sin? I was wrong in hitting you. I'm sorry that I hit you. I'm going to seek by God's grace not to hit you again, whatever it might be. I like Piper's definition a lot. Not just turn from sin, but turn and embrace Christ. Turn away from the the short-lived pleasures of sin for a season and turn to the eternal joys of Christ. Christ here, his first message, his heralding, as it were, proclaiming, and that word in the Greek meaning basically to preach, to call loudly to, Repent and believe in the gospel. Belief meaning it's the verb form of faith in this passage. But like the word repentance, faith or belief is very hard to understand. And especially in today's world, especially the Western world, faith implies more of this mysterious, mystical experience. I had a feeling, I had an impression. But if we interpret the word faith or or belief biblically, it simply means... I think this definition says it well, to trust, to rely, and depend. To trust and rely and depend on Christ alone for salvation. Those are action words, and those are the only thing that is needed for salvation by God. To trust, rely, and believe, and depend, excuse me, trust, rely, and depend upon the work of Christ for you. And those words, since they're action words, they call us to response. And the message of Christ as an urgent call to respond. The time is fulfilled. The time is here. The kingdom of God is now. The rule and authority and the reign of God is what we are to submit to. The kingdom of God and not the kingdom of Satan. We're to bow to God in his rule and reign, his kingdom and not Satan's. Certainly that's a call that we are to proclaim and it's a call to us this morning. That if we do not know Christ to trust and rely and depend upon Him. And if we do know Christ in saving faith, to continue to trust, rely, and depend on Him. But it's certainly not a call to do so devoid of hope or devoid of grace. Your turning is not something done by you. It's done by God in His pleasure for you that does the work in you. And certainly you then join in that work hand in hand, but it's empowered by the Holy Spirit showing us the glory of God in His beloved Son, Christ. We look upon the face of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the love of the Father through Jesus that empowers us to join with God's work in us and turn from sin. But we've got to also realize that belief in Jesus makes demands upon our life that are not easy. Let me close with two quotes and a verse of scripture. First quote from Kent Hughes. Belief is all that is necessary to become a Christian, but it must be a belief that changes the life. If you say that you believe but there are not substantial changes in your life, you had better consider carefully whether you truly believe. Luke 15, 7. Following the parable of the the 100 sheep, the one gets lost, Christ leaves the 99, goes to find the lost. Luke 15, 7. 
following that parable says, the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. Last quote, Piper, by that verse. Connecting us here together with Christ's message of repent and believe. Jesus is the seeking heart of God going out after sinners and winning our repentance. We must repent, but he's not left us alone in this. He has taken bold initiatives to reach us and change us. This message today and your being here is one of them. It is no accident. God is here in this word and is speaking. And his word is this. Come to the table. Repent. Open your eyes and see that the banquet of being with Jesus is worth the cost of following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in awe and wonder that you would call us your beloved children. That you would then give us instruction of how to live as your beloved children and not just instruction, the grace and the motivation and the ability to walk out that instruction of repent and believe and we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I don't know the individual things that each person is dealing with, but in some way, shape, or form as believers, everyone represented in this room, believers or unbelievers, there are areas of temptation. There are areas that the enemy is bombarding that we may be most weak in or susceptible in. And I pray, Father, that all of us together this morning would lift our eyes to the work of Christ, the grace that is found there, the strength that is found there, that because Christ endured the temptation without sin perfectly, we can then, time and time again, not only rejoice in that finished work, but then resist the devil using scripture, fighting well the good fight of faith and he will flee. Father, we thank you that you love your son, that he is the perfect son, the lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world for us. And because of that, we are now beloved children of the Father. Father, I pray that you would help us this week to really know what it means to open our eyes and see the banquet of being with Jesus worth the cost of following Jesus. Father, following you is tough. It comes with temptation. It comes with persecution. It comes with misunderstanding. It comes with hate. It comes with sacrifice. It makes hard demands upon our life. And yet demands, when fully submitted to, are most satisfying and most glorifying to you and most good for us. Help us this week, Father, as we seek to be faithful in what it means to follow you. 
because you are faithful to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.